If you don't know, John chapter 6 is actually the longest chapter in the New Testament. So we've been taking our time as we've been working through this. We've seen Jesus feed the multitude on the mountainside, walk on water, save his disciples in the midst of the storm, bring them to the other side. And then the crowds have come with their hungry stomachs. And Jesus has given them this rich teaching that he is the bread of life. Now we're going to conclude our our study in, in John 6. And this passage helpfully divides into three sections. Verse 41 through 59, Jesus speaks to the Jews. And I'm going to call them the mockers. Verses 60 to 66, Jesus speaks to a large crowd of disciples, people who are following him, learning from him. I'm going to call them the walkers. And then in verses 67 to 71, Jesus speaks to the twelve. And we can call them the talkers. Mockers, walkers, talkers. So let's first of all consider Jesus speaking with these Jewish leaders, those who will mock him. If you glance down at verse 59, you'll see that Jesus was in the synagogue at Capernaum. So if you want to picture this scene in your mind's eye, picture Jesus. It's, it's synagogue. And there are all those there to hear him and listen to him as he teaches. But when you glance back at verse 41, John starts and he says, so the Jews. Now, as we've been working our way through this chapter, John has never referred to the Jews. He's only ever referred to the crowds. And now, out of almost nowhere, John starts speaking of the crowds as the Jews. Now, it's because John wants us to know that those whom Jesus was interacting with almost certainly were the Jewish leaders, those who were hostile and opposed to Jesus. Some of them had been there on the mountainside when Jesus had fed the multitude. They had received the food. They were there when Jesus unpacked the meaning of the And so when John sets this up by saying, so the Jews... He's wanting us to know that this this conversation is set up for conflict. So the Jews grumbled about Jesus because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They heard Jesus' first time saying, and as they thought about it, they responded by grumbling. Now, Now, the word grumbling here conveys a sense they turned to one another, They began to whisper. They began to mumble and mutter regarding what Jesus has just said. I am the bread of life. Now, we've all seen this kind of thing happen, haven't we? We've perhaps even engaged in it ourselves. At school, at university, in the home, even in church. We hear something we don't like and we turn to the person next to us and we just mumble something at our breath. It's important that you know that when these Jews mumbled this under their breath, they did not want Jesus to hear what they were saying. And this is what they took issue with Jesus about. Jesus had said he was the bread sent from heaven. In other words, Jesus claimed to have divine origin. Now, for these Jews, this was not just blasphemous. This was preposterous. They knew Jesus' family background. They knew that his mum was Mary, and then his dad was Joseph. 
So how can he claim to be the bread from heaven? Now, seeing that they were sitting in a synagogue, Jesus could have at that moment said, bring me the scrolls of all of the prophecies that speak of the Messiah's birth. And he could have read each one of them and shown them how every prophecy in Scripture aligned perfectly with his birth story. But he didn't. Instead, Jesus gets to the heart of the matter, which we've seen time and time again, was the matter of their unbelieving hearts. Now, now watch this, right? This is, this is brilliant. Jesus says to them, do not grumble among yourselves. This must have been a heart-stopping moment for the Jews. Because they, they were just whispering to one another. They didn't want Jesus to hear them. And now Jesus calls them out. Now, as we've been studying this chapter, we've seen that there are so many striking parallels between the events here and the events that took place back Exodus with the wilderness wandering. And remember that generation? One of their problems was they continually grumbled. In fact, in Exodus 16, they grumbled because of Moses and Aaron. And here are their descendants, and they're grumbling because of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. Now, there, here's a striking parallel. When, they, when those of God's people were grumbling in the wilderness, wandering, Moses said to them, The Lord has heard your grumbling. You're not grumbling against us, meaning Moses and Aaron, but you're grumbling against the Lord. And here's Jesus, and he says, do not grumble among yourselves. In other words, here they are, and they're confronted by the Lord himself. He's heard their grumbling. And little do they know that they're grumbling in the very presence of God. Such is the state of their unbelieving and rebellious hearts. Now, this is, this is one of the reasons I, I love Jesus is because he's, in his teaching, he's so patient and gracious with people. And so what he does here, right, is he takes the time to share the message he's just already shared in verses 37 through 40. So, so look at what he says in verses 44 to 46. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. If you were here last week, there's there's this echo to, to the teaching in verses 37 and 40. Now, this is a really interesting portion of Scripture because we can hear this and think this all sounds rather fatalistic. You know, that humans must be robots. God determines exactly who is going to be saved and who is not going to believe. But we've got to always be faithful to scriptures. This is how scripture presents it. Absolutely, it is impossible for anyone to come to the Lord Jesus unless the Father draws them. This isn't new. Jesus said this to Nicodemus. You cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again. It is impossible for someone who's spiritually dead to make themselves live. It requires divine intervention. God the Father has to draw them. 
But it's also true that Jesus has been saying all the way throughout John's gospel and in this passage, you must believe. You must respond to what you hear and you must put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If I can put it in crude terms, right? God's mechanism by which God's electing purposes are worked out in people's lives is people respond to the call of the gospel. In fact, that's what the reference to Isaiah is all about. You see see what Jesus says? And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So when people hear and learn, they respond by coming to Jesus in faith and belief. Problem here is the Jews, they're not doing that. They're hearing, they ain't learning, and they ain't responding with belief, but with unbelief and rejection. Their grumbling is evidence the hardness of their hearts. Now, I, I'm so pastorally aware, right, that when you start teaching on election, that it throws up both questions and doubts in the minds of people. So you might be sitting here and you might find yourself asking yourself the question, have I been drawn by the Father? Well, here's how you know. Have you heard the gospel Have you responded to the call of the gospel? Have you come and have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you have, you've been drawn by the Father. And you're secure. And he will raise you up on the last day. Now, one of the things I think is always helpful to understand is that when the doctrine of election appears in Scripture... Nine times out of ten, it's intended to encourage the Christian. To to, to make us feel secure in our standing before God. Not to discourage us and make us feel insecure. But to impress upon us how secure we are. And, and, And Jesus has been saying that. If you come to him, he'll never cast you out. If you come to him, it's because the Father's drawn you. It's because you've heard, you've learned, you've responded with faith and belief. Now, I know that the biggest question that this throws up in our minds is, what is the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility? And I can't answer that question. But I can give you an illustration that I find helpful. D.L. Moody said that becoming a Christian is like seeing a door, and on the front of the door it says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you... You believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You walk through the door and you just happen to turn back around. And on the back side of the door it says, Before the foundation of the earth, I chose you. You know what makes the doctrine of election so beautiful? Is it's deeply humbling. We contribute nothing. God gives everything. Salvation from first to last is all of him. And yet we are so secure. From before he laid the foundation of the earth, he set his love upon us. God loved us before he made us. God knew us and set his affection and has brought it and promises to bring his plan to completion. Now the tragedy is that these Jews who are listening on, they're not hearing, they're grumbling. And yet Jesus does it again. Does it again, right? 
He's patient with them. He gives them another opportunity to hear the gospel. Now, if you know anything about preachers, myself included, is we, we say the same things over and over again in different ways to make the same point. Don't worry, we learned it from Jesus. He's just said back in verse 35, I'm the bread of life. Look at verse 48. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Do you see it? He repeats himself over and over again. I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread. Eat of me and you will have life. Now Jesus understood that the men who were listening to him those who are listening, they were not understanding and so he's giving them opportunity to hear it loudly and clearly. He's the bread of life. Eat of him and you will live. He understood, they didn't even understand the meaning of the manna that had been fed to their forefathers in the wilderness. All of that pointed to Jesus. But they ate of that and they still died. Here's the thing, eat of the bread of life and you shall never die. Jesus is the bread come down from heaven. Now what Jesus does in this passage and what he says next is is so provocative, it is so graphic, and, and in one sense, humanly speaking, it's so hard to understand. Look at what he says in verse 51. And, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It's an astonishing statement. Here we, here, here's the moment we're invited to think about Jesus' sacrifice. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Jesus, he's now saying, here's the reason for my coming. It's so that I may lay down my life as a sacrifice, a toning sacrifice. Pay the penalty, take the punishment for people's sins. So that people will come and know life in its abundance. Life forevermore. But it's on this context that he's the bread of life and you need to eat of him. Look at verse 52. Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, see when it says there they disputed among themselves? That is an intensification of their grumbling. And if you know the Exodus story, that's exactly what happens. They grumble, they grumble, they grumble. And it's all to their condemnation. And see, when they ask this question, it's a form of mocking rebuke. It's rooted in their unbelief. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now, let's be honest. This does sound strange. Look at verse 53. Here's where Jesus presses home. They need to respond to him and what he's come to do. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up in the last day. For my flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks in my blood abides in me, and I in him. And in these verses, Jesus, because he, he, he's so conscious, these guys are slow to understand. He just repeats himself, saying the same thing, different way, making the same point. You want to have eternal life? 
eat and drink his flesh and blood. Now the question is, is this an invitation to cannibalism? Now, in one sense we could laugh, but you know that the Romans, you know what they thought of the early Christians? Every time they celebrated the Lord's Supper, they were eating Jesus' flesh, drinking blood. They called them cannibals. Now, now, you and I think this is grim, right? Just imagine you're a Jew. What does the Old Testament prohibit you from doing? Eating anything that has blood in it. So, so what is Jesus saying? Like, you, he couldn't get more provocative. Now, we, under, we need to understand that Jesus is speaking here in metaphorical language. But I, I want to be honest with you and say that there are some Christian traditions that don't agree with that interpretation. Namely, the Roman Catholic Church and some high Anglican churches. This is where their whole belief of transubstantiation comes from. You know, the belief that the bread and wine are transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ after they're consecrated in the Mass. Now, the problem is this passage has got nothing, and you need to hear me say this clearly, nothing to do with the Lord's Supper. Jesus has not yet instituted the Lord's Supper. Those listening would have never jumped in their minds to think, oh yeah, yeah, he must be speaking about the Lord's Supper. They'd have never made that connection. Jesus here is speaking to them in figurative terms because he's calling upon them to respond to who he is and to his once and for all sacrifice. And, and what he's saying in using this imagery of eating and drinking is saying this takes us right to the heart of believing. Think about it like this, right? When you eat and you drink, do you know what it involves? It involves consumption. That is, you take something that is external to you and you make it internal to you. That's faith. That's belief. Saving faith takes hold of Christ and his work and it brings him near. His life becomes our life. His death in our place. His sacrifice for us. It, this this image is so powerful because it, it gives off the idea as well, conveys the idea of union and communion. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood abides in me and I in him. There's union with Christ. There's communion with Christ. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Again, this picture of eating and drinking Jesus you eat food, you drink, and it, and, it, and it gives, it nourishes you. But the problem with the food and the drink of this earth is that it's temporal. It never ultimately satisfies. Jesus, he gives life and he eternally satisfies. We, we, we looked at that last week. Now the tragedy here is, they're given the gospel offer in the most pointed and in the most graphic way. And all they do is they continue to grumble. They're mockers. They reject Jesus. And you may be sitting here and you can, man, I'm struggling to understand. And don't worry. 
Because now we come to Jesus' conversation with the disciples. And look at what they say. If you, you look at verse 60, the second half that we read. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You see when it says disciples here, this does not refer to the twelve. This refers to the many people who have been following Jesus, they have been listening to Jesus, they're apparently walking with Jesus, they're in some degree of fellowship with Jesus, and as we see, they're about to go the same way as the Jews. They're going to reject Jesus. As Jesus confronts them with the same message, they say, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Now, don't mishear them. They're not saying that they have trouble understanding it. They're saying, actually, they have trouble accepting it. Now, Jesus is, is masterful here because he diagnoses their problem. Verse 61, but Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Do you know what I love about Jesus? And, and this is because of love. You know, the man who speaks the most truth to you is the man who loves you the most, said Robert Murray McChain. The man who loves you the most will be willing to tell you the truth. And Jesus, because he, 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 he loves all those, he's, he's speaking truth to them. And he said, do you take offense at this? You're grumbling at this. Your problem is his hardness of heart. And Jesus, he will not tone down his claims. He's relentless. Look at verse 62. Then, what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And, and, and what Jesus is saying here is, after he lays down his life as a sacrifice, what if in the wake of his death you were to see him? Send to the right hand of the Father. You see, one of the things you've got to understand about the, the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, they're all one piece. And the invitation to believe in Jesus is to believe in his life and in his sacrificial death and in his resurrection and in his glorious ascension. To be a disciple, you must accept that Jesus died, he rose, he's ascended, and he's coming again. It's what we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Now, Jesus here patiently says to these men, these disciples and women, their problem. Look at verse 63. It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. And he said, verse 65, this is why I've told you that you, that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with Jesus. Jesus now pushes them for a response. He says, guys, if you try and figure out salvation in your own strength, it's impossible. You need supernatural, spiritual enablement. You need to be born again. You need God to work upon you. And the problem with these disciples was they were following Jesus and a lot of their thinking was about what they could contribute. About what what they could bring to the table. But they had not turned to Jesus, believed upon Jesus, accepted him on his own terms. And when they're confronted with the truth of Jesus, they walk. And we, we, we can't let this go. There might be some of you here this morning and you're listening to this and you're not getting this and you're, and, and, and for a short while you've been pretending to be a follower of Jesus. 
You've loved being among Christian people. You've loved the, the fellowship. But, but when you hear it put like this, like, come on. And maybe this is your turning point. You see, Jesus is pressing us for a response. There's no neutral ground to Jesus. You either believe him or you reject him. You either follow him or you walk away from him. Now here's where it all comes to a head. So Jesus turns to the twelve. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Now Jesus doesn't do this for his own benefit. He does this for their benefit. Now in John chapter 6, do you remember what's happened to the disciples, the twelve disciples in the past? Jesus has tested them. And when he tested them, do you remember what happened? They failed. They failed the test. When Jesus said to Philip, how are we going to feed all these people? Philip says, impossible. Totally got it wrong. Well, here Jesus gives them the biggest test of their life and discipleship so far. They've just witnessed the crowds walk. They've just witnessed the disciples, the large group of them, walk. Jesus says, do you want to walk as well? Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter, the spokesman for his disciple, for the disciple said this, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now this has got to be the most glorious moment in this passage. This has been so hard to understand, this whole eating and drinking the bread. Now, they see it. The disciples, they get it. The illustration of eating his flesh and drinking his blood is all about believing in Jesus. And what do they say? To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. We get it, Jesus. You are the Holy One of God. This is a moment where they display their true saving faith. They express their heartfelt belief. And and notice, they they so understand Jesus. is like, where else would we go? What's the alternative? Do we go back to our old lifestyles? Do, do, Do we go and follow some other rabbi? No, none of them can satisfy. All the things of this world, they perish. None of them give us what we truly need. They have the deep heart set. Heart, heart and soul conviction that Jesus has what they need. And what does he have? The words of eternal life. The gospel. The good news. Believe and you shall be saved. These are words that you and I need to inform our lives. Yeah, they're hard words, they're true words, they're life-giving words, they're really lasting words. Peter's confession here ought to be all of our confessions. If you want to know how to respond to Jesus in this passage, just say what Peter said. But, it would have been okay if the passage ended there, wouldn't it? But it doesn't. A mere outward confession, profession of faith. Sometimes not the whole story. Jesus says, did I not choose you, the twelve? 
and yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Judas was going to have his own turning point. Outwardly, publicly, you looked at Judas and you thought, follower of Christ, believer in Christ. John makes it clear here, John 6 makes it clear here that there is a difference between the appearance of things and the reality of things. You know, I can look at all of you and, and to a certain extent from, from the human eye based on what you, based on what you say, I, I can conclude that you're a Christian. But in, in some ways, it doesn't really matter because I'm not God. And He sees all things. He sees into the heart. The sobering truth is that Jesus looked at Judas and he knew who he was. He was a devil. That is, he was a false confessor of Jesus. He was an evil one masquerading as an angel of light. Judas enjoyed all the external privileges of being associated to Jesus. And, and, and the, here's the sobering truth. You might externally enjoy all the privileges associated with being in a church. You might be fooling all of us, but you are not fooling God. And that should sober us up. And so the question is, then how do we respond? Well, as we draw this to a close, a, a close listen, let the words of Peter ring in your ears. Lord, to whom else would we turn? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed. You are the whole one of God. Isn't that amazing that that's his confession? You're the holy one of God. I play no games with you, Jesus. I believe in who you are. I take you seriously. And you know the glorious news of the gospel is if you believe in him and what he's done, you have life. You are secure. You are eternally satisfied. Not only in this life, but in the age to come. So here's the invitation. Come. Eat, drink. Meaning come. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And if you believe... Keep on believing. Let's pray. Our holy God, we don't want to pretend in your presence, play games with you in your presence. Your word sobers us up. Your word calls us to truth. And we thank you that it's by your work of your spirit that you illuminate our minds and you help us see and you regenerate our hearts and you give us even the gift of faith that we might believe. And so we come to you and we believe in you. And we thank you for the promise that all who believe in you, you will never cast out. Thank you that by, it's by irresistible grace that you draw us to yourself. Thank you, God, for, for your amazing work of salvation. 
Thank you, Father, that you planned it with the Son. Thank you that your Son accomplished it. And thank you that your Spirit applies it. And so we pray that this morning that all here under the sound of the gospel, we would respond appropriately with belief. We wouldn't walk away, but we'd walk on believing and trusting, finding where our souls are longing and yearning for. And we thank you that all of this has been made possible because of who Jesus is and because of what Jesus has done in his glorious sacrifice on our behalf. We remember it this day and we respond. We love you. We believe in you. We will follow you. Amen.